Hi, folks. Welcome to Connecting the Dots. I'm Jesse Chen, your host. I am just getting started with this podcast, and I would like to welcome you and thank you for joining. Um, I'm going to be using this series to try to talk about the intersection of my passions, which exist uh, in community, leadership, uh, philosophy, and politics to a great degree. And the first place that I want to start to just kind of kick it off immediately is with this trend that we're seeing, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world uh, regarding popular uprisings and anti-establishment anger, et cetera. And I think that there is a really interesting uh, pattern that has been emerging, um, not just over the last couple of years, but really over the last decade that is now coming into focus. And like so much of our everyday lives, we don't really always understand things until we can see them in context. Um, and I think there's a context here that makes sense to share and to present as a possible way of looking at what's been going on. So let's rewind back to 2003, 2004. Uh, the left... Uh, on, in this country, in the United States, was just getting started with its anti-Iraq uh, movement. For a long time, the left had been kind of sleeping in this country since the 1960s, 70s. It had gone, gone into sleep mode. And Iraq really woke people up again to a great extent. And so 2003, 2004, the movement wasn't that great, but it was there. It was noticeable. And it spawned all sorts of interesting online communities as uh, the internet was still very much, um, you know, pre-Facebook at that time. Facebook had just launched, I think, in 2003 at Harvard 2004 um, to, to a larger set of colleges. And there had been no real online presence yet for the progressive movement. But MoveOn.org came around and ended up encapsulating what would be the anti-war movement. And so that was just the beginning. Fast forward a couple of years later, and the left decides to uh, uh, basically say no to a Hillary Clinton presidency and put in Barack Obama, um, the first African-American president, as the new, um, uh, first of all, Democratic nominee, let alone the president of the United States. And so there was a trend right there between 2003 and 2007-08 with the escalation from the anti-war movement over to Barack Obama, first black president, um, who was left of Hillary on some issues. Um, obviously, it was a couple rough years for the Obama presidency getting off the ground. Despite having control of the Congress, Obama's commitment to bipartisan government um, led to several um, compromises with uh, the right and um, this led to not only an incomplete overhaul of our healthcare system, but it also led to further um, populist uprising, most notably with Occupy Wall Street's launch in 2011. So in Zuccotti Park in August 2011, when Occupy uh, got started, it was, you know, born in the physical world, but really grew in the technology world with the help of Twitter. But Twitter was not designed, is still not designed for, dem uh, for democracy, for the needs 
of people really organizing and self-organizing. It's designed as a broadcasting platform and as a micro-publishing platform, uh, micro-blogging platform, I should say. So it kind of fizzled over time. Um, and then fast forward to 2015 um, and 2014, 2015, and we have a really interesting situation with the launch of Black Lives Matter, uh, a new movement, um, more or less um, in, inspi inspired is the wrong word, but energized by the um, the injustices that have been uh, that the black community has been suffering through. Uh, generally at the hands of, of police under different circumstances, depending on which side you're asking, of course. Um, but regardless of, you know, whether you agree or don't agree with Black Lives Matter, this movement was launched in, the, in response to uh, Michael Brown, Ferguson, Missouri, and has been growing since. Uh, it started with uh, the local presence in Ferguson, and it grew to translocal presences around the country so now you have a, a civil rights movement more or less that is um, not just marching on dc a la the 1960s but actually marching around the country in every in every in, uh, form and format so they've shut down the bay bridge in san francisco they've marched through the city the streets of chicago and in new york etc and so that is a movement that has been growing. And then, of course, we come to Bernie Sanders, the Democratic Socialist Independent Senator from Vermont, who is now challenging Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination at the time of this recording, and is basically at a point where you can see a very clear trend, right? And the trend exists. You see it growing from an anti-Iraq war movement that was relatively ineffective to electing Barack Obama, to Occupy Wall Street, to Black Lives Matter, to Bernie Sanders. There is a movement that has been rising for the last decade, decade and a half. It is undeniable to see it in that lens. Now, to, you know, a lot of people often say, in order to understand our future, you need to understand our past. And I agree with that to an extent. I will just challenge in saying just because this is the way, you know, X is the way that we accomplish civil rights reform in the 1960s doesn't mean that X is also the appropriate approach in 2016. I would say, however, that looking at trends is a very valuable way to identify patterns and to see a different uh, perspective, perhaps, than one that is traditionally presented or maybe not even actively recognized. And that has nothing to do with the intelligence of people. It just has everything to do with that we're just so busy with our damn lives that it's not necessarily something that you're going to think about. But as you think about this trend that has been emerging and evolving over the last decade and a half, and you look at the trend that's been emerging on the right as well, especially and most notably with the Tea Party in 2010 through 2014 taking control, more or less, of our federal government, at one point even shutting it down. It is undeniable that there is a rising amount of anger, populist anger, against the establishment system. What is the establishment system? It is... Everything and nothing at the same time. It's not like there's a, I don't believe that there's a group of people behind some, you know, 
heavy curtains in the corner of some dark room or something, you know, making these decisions. It's just a system. It's a systemic output of the reality that we have that people have problems with. And so you look at a system that is putting people out of work. You look at a system that seems to favor those who are um, not working uh, over 40 hours a week. Um, a system that seems to be broken at the most fundamental level when it comes to the most basic things. Um, and of course, all this attention that is paid to you know, Kim Kardashian and, and, and Kanye West and all the other BS that can come with, you know, celebrity gossip, etc. And people look at this and go, something's wrong here. I'm working too hard, you know, either, you know, depending on what side of the aisle you're on, you either blame the illegal immigrants for stealing your jobs or you blame, you know, a broken capitalist business structure economy for stealing your jobs. It's basically either side of the equation people are upset so again it doesn't matter what you believe in at this point that's not really what i'm getting at what i'm getting at is there is this uprising it is happening so what does this mean where are we going from here how does the trend line continue well no one can predict predict the future but trends and patterns indicate that the way that we interpret events in the present should not be the way that we interpret events based on what happened in the past. You understand what I'm saying? So like just because, you know, the uh, the conventional wisdom is really the phrase. The conventional wisdom is, you know, that this is just the left uh, with Bernie Sanders. This is just the left, you know, trying to move Hillary to the left um, or that Donald Trump is basically serving as a lightning rod for all the anger and disgust that people have with the Republican establishment. I think that those are partially true, but to analyze um, the situation in the present, utilizing that pattern that I just spoke of as a consideration, it changes the entire calculus, right? So if you start seeing this trend of an uprising, basically, then the question becomes, okay, now that we look at events going forward, how are people responding to them and what does that mean in the context of a potential pattern of growing uprising, growing disgust, growing um, frustration with the existing system? And what can we get away with um, if you are part of the current system? What can you get away with in terms of changes that will... Um, address the concerns of those people versus are is, is it even possible to address those concerns without there being some sort of major disruptive change and so i this comes down to a very you know fascinating you know concept of 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 leadership and i've spoken on this before um both in 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 scholastic context as well as in uh in a ted talk that i gave which is that democratic leadership is effectively more important than ever. If you look at, and I'm going to switch gears a little bit here, but follow me on this. If you look at social networks and what they've done as a technology to connect people, um, it is often a trite phrase and you hear it a lot, but it really is a game changer in terms of everything. So the fact that there are people who are self-organizing coming together 
and creating a different um, pressure and level of energy on the existing system than has ever been possible because they never had that that fabric that that uh, that connecting tissue that could bring them together. This is this is a game changer. So it does require you know leadership to be more sensitive to the fact that people are connected to one another. Um, it used to be, you know, if you were the, you know, a store manager of a 200 employee store, those 200 employees really didn't have another place to connect except for the break room, right? If that, and they weren't all on break at the same time. So they had to unionize and maybe the union was effective enough to, uh, cause people to participate and to be engaged and to be valued but even that over time has you know diminished and i blame a lot of that on this problem that i'm speaking to which is leadership is not nearly as democratic as it needs to be democratic lowercase d democracy in that you are proactively creating feedback loops with your members constituents employees community whatever what however you want to define it so that people are not just feeling that they're being heard, but they're actually being heard and you're actually responding to them as an effective leader, right? So there is a level of balance here that needs to be attained. On one end of things, the leader needs to, again, hear what people are saying, reach out, make people feel heard. But on the other side of things, the leader also needs to be willing to stand his or her ground and say, you know what? You gave me the authority here, so I need to make the best decision given the authority and responsibility you gave me. So as much as you 10 people in the corner might be the loudest people in the room, I have a responsibility to hear what everyone else is saying and all the inf other information that I have to consider come to whatever conclusion I think is best as a leader. And again, this is not hard, right? This is not difficult. Um, it does take practice, but it is, in my view, effective leadership. And so given the social network era that we are in, coming back to this topic of the populist anger and, and more or less uprising that we are seeing right now, and we're still very much in the early stages of it, leaders of all kinds really need to be more sensitive to what their constituents are actually saying and proactively make people feel like they're interested in hearing what they're saying, let alone letting people know that they're taking action based on their input. People don't need, this is something I, I've said this to a few elected leaders given my work with Powerline. There's people do not need to have you make the decision that they agree with. Right? They don't need that. They just need to feel like they've been heard. Chris Christie, before the Bridgegate scandal in New Jersey, was really, really great at this. He used to go to the town halls that he would set up around the state, call in radio shows, and he would be really good at letting people know that they were heard and then kind of turning around and saying, thanks, I get it, but here's why I'm going to do it my way and just go do it. Now, Again, you don't have to agree or disagree with Chris Christie to acknowledge the leadership style, the communication style that he embraced rather effectively in his first term. Now, after Bridgegate, he kind of embraced more of the 
um, bully attitude and more of the shutdown tough guy attitude, which has been relatively ineffective. But um, it is still notable for a lot of people who are fans of Christie that they very much feel like, hey, he heard me out and he's going to do it his way. That's fine. And I still like him. And that's the way that people think. Right. So this is a leadership style that more people who are in leader, formal leadership positions need to take. And in light of this general uprising that we're seeing, there needs to be more acknowledgement by the leadership layer, by the leadership class, for lack of a better phrase, that the old ways of doing things are not compatible. They are not compatible with the technology-connected world that we are in now, period. This is not, you know, some sort of conjecture by some sort of, you know, um, oh, yeah, social media is just this amazing thing, you know, like everyone can like something or this. No, it's like people are connected to each other. All those crazy people that only used to sit at the end of the bar, you know, at your local bar, they can now all connect to each other, right? Same thing said differently. All the people who are on the left, all the people who are on the right, they can now connect to each other, never having to interact personally. This changes everything from a leadership standpoint, everything. And so if you look at the last 15 years and you see this trend line of an increasingly effective organization of the people, it is happening. What we do about it makes all the difference in the world, and in fact, I might argue that it is the most important thing that any leader should be thinking of today, which is how am I going to better connect and serve the people that I have so that this uprising doesn't take me out or doesn't take me down. It's time for a break. Thanks so much. We'll be right back. back to Connecting the Dots. I'm Jesse Chen. Uh, when I last left off, I was talking about leadership and the need for leaders to respond differently to their communities given the nature of social media and given this pattern that has been emerging over the last 15 years regarding um, a more or less populist anger and populist uprising. Um, it is a complete disruption to the system as we know it. Um, and we are still in the very early stages of, um, of this kind of revolution. Um, and to that point, I want to focus in on, on, if I focus in on the leader end of things, let me focus in next on kind of the, the, the citizen slash community member end of things. Um, you know, as a way of example, again, this is not about whether or not you agree or disagree with the policies. Bernie Sanders talks about a political revolution in this country. Um, which he defines as more or less showing up to the polls in mass. Um, but he has also said that one of the big problems with Barack Obama's presidency is that um, Barack Obama as a president was not the same as Barack Obama the candidate. And so the 
amount of community organizing that the president did once he got into office was not uh, where it needed to be in order to move the needle inside Congress. And in the absence of that leadership, more or less, um, the Tea Party came in and effectively filled that void and was able to control the Congress, despite the fact that uh, the Democrats had control of the White House and for a period of time, the Senate. So what's mostly what's mostly interesting about this to me, Senate and, and, and House uh, and then only Senate, um, is that the approach that Bernie's coming at this is Barack Obama didn't keep on organizing people once he got into office. And this is a really, really interesting strategy. And one that, again, um, I have been very passionate about, I've talked about in the past, which is we need to stop defining democracy as voting in an election every two to four years, right? This is something that people go, what is a democracy? Well, it's voting. Well, voting only happens every two to four years. The world is changing really quickly and issues are coming up all the time. How am I supposed to just leave it at that? Now, of course, there is a counter argument to that, which is, hey, you elect these people and they're supposed to run the country for you. Yeah, to an extent, except that they are often not actually responding to the will of the people uh, in between those elections. And so how do you keep the pressure on? Um, well, again, look no further than the Tea Party. The Tea Party is an excellent example of this. doesn't matter if you agree or disagree with their policies. They are a great example of a citizen's movement that more or less influenced and put pressure on their elected leaders specifically at in in congress and so when bernie talks about the political revolution that he he wants and needs um and his campaign wants and needs it's not just getting people out to show up and vote it's getting people to actually be involved after november after the election and this is again coming back to this kind of both from a leadership standpoint, that presents really interesting challenge for Bernie and his potential future administration about how to engage the masses and get people organized around a common message, common objective, et cetera, all the usual challenges of, you know, vanilla leadership. But from a citizen angle, it also introduces a really interesting challenge for everyday citizens and community members as well, which is what is your role in being involved after November? And how does that actually, what does that actually look like? And again, I come back to this notion that we are changing as a country. We are changing how we view our relationship to each other via technology. We are changing in terms of how we look at the existing system. There is a very, very specific acknowledgement by those on the left and the right that the system is broken. And so what does that mean for people's engagement under a president like Bernie Sanders or even Donald Trump that says, hey, I want you to call the fuck out of your elected leaders over the next you know, five days and make this a huge issue? Corralling social pressure around the Congress using the bully pulpit is something that has actually not been effectively done 
first of all, in my lifetime, right? Like I, when I look around, yeah, you have, you know, president uses the bully pulp and basically what it does is it uses the power of editorials in newspaper coverage of the issue to move readers of those newspapers to possibly contact their electeds. But it is such an ineffective mechanism of generating social pressure on Congress that over the last decade, it's really, you know, fallen to the wayside in terms of its effectiveness, right? I mean, how many times does, um, you know, does Barack Obama talk about, you know, gun violence and a shooting and there's no sort of action on the topic, so to speak? Again, it doesn't matter if you really agree with the issue or not. Just look at the the reality of this is a guy who's gotten, you know, this is a president, excuse me, who has gotten, you know, primetime news coverage, Oval Office address about gun violence and, and all sorts of, you know, addresses regarding Sandy Hook Elementary and all this kind of stuff. And yet that was not enough to actually get people to call their electeds, right? This is what I'm talking about, right? So we're in the year 2016. You would think that people would be freed up from working in the fields every day or from doing their, you know, work at the factory to be able to reach their elected leaders. But that's not the case. The case is instead that they are so busy and the broken system is so broken that people have disengaged entirely. And so what this revolution is that Bernie specifically talks about a lot and gets credit for it, credited for a lot is, again, effectively this acknowledgement that the trend that I spoke of earlier in the segment regarding the populist uprising and anger needs to be more organized. It needs to be more purposeful. Purposeful. It needs to be more, um, more specific for people in their everyday lives. They need to be taking concrete action. And so what does that look like? Obviously, I'm biased. My work with Powerline is specifically designed to help with that equation. But from a broader leadership standpoint, it's a question of personal leadership. What are you willing to do as an individual to help make this community, this country, this organization great again, <laughs> right? What are you actually going to do at an individual level? You know, it's not just enough to vote every two to four years. That much is clear. So are you going to contact your electeds? Are you going to be involved in some sort of, um, you know, union hall meeting? Are you going to be uh, out fundraising for X? Are you going to be, you know, changing hearts and minds about specific issues, you know, in your, in your workplace or in your organization, whatever it is, right? You need to take individual action if you care about these things. It's not just enough to write a Facebook post. It's not just enough to vent via a Twitter tweet. It's not just enough to vote every two to four years. This is a leadership, personal leadership challenge. Um, and more broadly speaking, it's the crisis of democracy that we're dealing with. And it really is, again, you look on the left, you look on the right, the populist swell an uprising right now that we are seeing it's not conscious people don't really know that it's happening but it's happening you look around and everyone's saying the system's broken everyone's saying we're worse off now than we've ever been everyone's saying that the next president's not going to be able to do anything to change things right that is an acknowledgement that something is wrong the next step after acknowledging is of course to take 
some sort of action. And acknowledging that the system is broken means that maybe, just maybe, people need to be a little bit more involved, a little bit more hands-on. Not just as leaders interacting with their communities, but also as citizens being engaged in their communities, their organizations, etc. It's not just enough to sit back and wait for the leadership layer, the quote-unquote establishment, the quote-unquote system to figure it out. You have to be an active part of it if you want to see change. You, as a leader, need to go out of your way to create open feedback loops. Open not in the sense that they're open-ended, but open in that anyone can participate in that feedback loop and anyone can create a feedback loop. So if there's an activist or a community organization in your, your local district, Mr. Elected Leader, Mrs. Elected Leader, you need to be willing to participate in that feedback loop again because it comes back to making people feel heard right and hopefully maybe just maybe what they have to say is done so in an effective way that it actually changes your views as a leader making you more effective and by the way making re-election a hell of a lot easier too so that's kind of the political angle of it but you can see that there's a lot of non-political applications of that same logic and that same argument within the non-political space. I mean, how many times do we see, you know, let me, let me talk about a student government because more or less most people have experienced student government even if they weren't in it because they saw it in their high school or, or college or what have you. The same example here for a student government president has got to be, hey, it's not just me and my officers or whoever's been elected. It's me corralling the entire student body. And not just for that once a year, <laughs> what seems to be a now traditional fight against, you know, an increase in tuition, some sort of tuition hike. It actually needs to be on all of the issues. How are you mobilizing and organizing and engaging the student body on an agenda that you've been elected into office to fulfill? And I would challenge those student government presidents to reach higher, to challenge the student body to think bigger in terms of what a student government could be or what their roles as students could be not just on campus but in society in general you know it's not uncommon around the world for student unions not to be buildings that are on your local college campus but to actually be unions in the same way that labor unions exist right student unions are national protest movements, national forces in elections, in, in, in national and state and provincial politics. But we don't do that here in the United States. Again, this is a huge opportunity, but from a leadership practice standpoint, represents the point that I'm trying to make. Leaders need to be more democratic with their communities because this uprising is happening and individual citizens need to be part of it. If you really don't want an oligarchy, if you really don't want a situation in which a small amount of people control most of the power, then you have to be engaged. Now, what is that engagement? It could be an, a, a, a super wide uh, spectrum from the most simple transactional items like voting and and donating to more interactional items like hosting a community discussion space or creating, you know, 
materials to share with your colleagues in your organization, right? This is something that is, is up to all of us. And so at this point in time, again, just talking about this from a leadership perspective, from a uprising perspective, from a trend perspective, we face a critical choice right now. And that choice is whether or not we accept that a very small and few amount of people who are involved are competent enough to continue being the only ones involved in running our system, which a lot of people think is broken, or we say, no, they're not. They're not competent enough or they can't do it on their own, whatever phrase you want to use to describe it. We have to be engaged too. Or I'm a leader. I want to do the right thing. I need to engage people. I need to involve more people into that equation. So I think there's a lot there to think about, um, certainly from a leadership standpoint, also from a political philosophy standpoint. Um, again, first episode, I hope that you're interested. I want to close it up now so I can stay to some sort of standard time uh, interval with this show. So I'll close it up. I'm Jesse Chen. Thanks for joining Connecting the Dots, and I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.